one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. This is Talking Space, episode 903, for the week of Monday, May 15th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. I can't wait to kick this show off, Sawyer. It's going to be a very fun, very busy show, and, and I hope everybody's going to enjoy it as much as we're going to enjoy bringing it to you. Oh, yes, a lot to talk about tonight. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hey, everybody. So... Kat Robinson will be joining us again shortly. She is on the road. Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass, is working on some new music and will be back in about a month or two, hopefully premiering some of that new music. So we're excited for that and wishing her the best of luck in her writing. But in the meantime, let's get into space news. And our first story happened on the eve of this recording, which again is Monday, May 15th, 2017. And that is a Falcon 9 successfully launched from Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The launch, which occurred at 7.21 p.m. Eastern Time, carried the Inmarsat 5, flight number 4. That's right, I-5F4. It was part of the Inmarsat 5 network of communication satellites and it was the fourth of those satellites that have been launched because of the size of the payload which is about the size of a bus and the designated orbit which is geostationary transfer orbit this is one of the rare instances now where the first stage was not recovered either on a barge or on land Yes, yeah, Sawyer, this uh, Inmarsat 5 is part of Inmarsat's Global Express network. It's basically designed to deliver uh, Wi-Fi access to well, travelers and, and to aircraft. Again, this is the fourth satellite for that, and uh, we're, we're hoping that uh, uh, the bird is uh, in good health and uh, doing well at this hour. Last we heard, um, which was at... Uh, uh, 31 minutes, 59 seconds after launch, uh, the uh, Inmarsat 5 uh, was successfully deployed from the second stage of the Falcon 9 and was doing quite nice. Good, excuse me, doing quite nicely. So uh, uh, hats off to Inmarsat, hats off to SpaceX for another successful delivery, and congratulations to all involved. Good job. Yes, indeed. Now, this isn't the only Falcon 9 that fired up its engines within the last week or two. Another one, the core of the Falcon Heavy, completed its first test. On May 9th, SpaceX tweeted out that the previous week had seen a successful test fire of that Falcon Heavy core at their facility in McGregor, Texas. 
Gene, you have a little more on that? Yeah, this was a very, very short uh, test fire of the core stage. Uh, but uh, in a tweet, uh, the, uh, the company said that it completed the first uh, uh, static test fire of the core stage at the McGregor test facility. It really didn't, the SpaceX was kind of playing this close to the vest. They really didn't disclose any, you know, really, really good or, or juicy data on this. I will say that uh, Falcon Heavy kind of uses the same sort of architecture, if you will, but not quite as uh, United Launch Alliance's Delta IV Heavy, where you have one large core stage flanked by two uh, two smaller boosters uh, to, to let folks know those two small boosters are probably going to be reflown Falcon 9s uh, with the new core stage in the middle. They've had some pretty, well, let's just say they've, they've had some development challenges uh, over the period of time. This has been, uh, it's been a while coming. When it was first introduced, Sawyer, and, and I believe when we broke the news on it, I think that was late, I want to say it was late 2011, early 2012, somewhere in that, that time frame. And uh, they indicated that at that time, we were going to be launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base somewhere in late 2012, the 2013 time frame. That, of course, has come and gone, and you know, here we are, 2017, and we're still kind of waiting for that launch. But this is, it's starting to look more and more optimistic that uh, we're going to have a uh, Falcon Heavy launch sometime this year, especially with this test. So fingers crossed, and you know we'll have Fa Falcon Heavy finally ready to go. Uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on things and uh, keep you all posted, but uh, so far, so good. So yes, we certainly hope to get to see that launch very soon, and it's looking more like we'll actually get to see it take off in the end of summer, or if not, beginning of fall of this year. Finally, we can't wait for it. Now, the next scheduled launch of a Falcon 9 is currently set for June 1st, 2017, and that is the CRS-11 mission, which is nearing the end of the first commercial resupply contract for NASA with SpaceX. The CRS-11 mission is special in that the Dragon spacecraft that will be visiting the ISS has been there before. This will be the first time that SpaceX will attempt to refly a Dragon capsule, this one having previously flown on CRS-4. That launch again is currently scheduled for June 1st, and Talking Space will be there for it. There is a lot of excitement around this with the history of reflying the Dragon, as well as getting to hear about all the amazing science experiments that will be on there, plus... The last time that we've had audio on this podcast from Launchpad 39A was July of 2011, so a lot of exciting things to look forward to with that upcoming launch, and we hope you'll stick around for that episode when it comes out. Yeah, Sawyer, I'm kind of curious on how they're going to go ahead and, and explain how they refurbished Dragon, given the fact that Dragon splashes down, and once you kind of get your water in there, you've got a little bit of a problem electrically and, and so on, so it would be interesting to go ahead and see how they go and how they explain how they refurb the uh, the dragon or at least explain as much as they they want to uh, on how they refurb uh, dragon from uh, you know the seawater exposure be interesting to hear that especially since it looks like you took the stay puff marshmallow man and threw him in a fire so yeah <laughs> it certainly looks like those capsules have seen better days after they splash back down from the station but uh then again so did the falcon 9 first stages and one of those reflew looking beautiful 
Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but, but uh, again, I, I'd be very, very curious on, on, on what the process is as far as getting these things refurbed and, and how it how long it really, really takes to get uh, this vehicle together after, you know, you've had that had seepage in there of seawater in the electronics. So it, uh, I'm, I'm really eager to find that out. Oh, I think I've got it figured out. It's uh, it's my own concept. This isn't anything that that I've picked up from other sources. I think it's lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. We'll use it for now. <laughs> yeah, and if if you hear it from anybody else, be sure and let them know they should give credit back to Talking Space and moi. <laughs> You got it, sir. Well, however they're cleaning up that dragon, we're excited to see it fly. And a little more cleaning up action happened as well on Friday, May 12th. Some cleanup action outside the International Space Station. And by cleanup action, we mean replacing avionics boxes and doing some repairs outside the International Space Station. Expedition 51 Commander Peggy Whitson and Flight Engineer Jack Fisher performed a four and a half hour or so spacewalk outside the ISS this past Friday. Now, there was a little bit of a glitch before the spacewalk in that there was a leak in a hose that helped supply the spacesuit with power and water and other things. There was a small leak with that. As a result, the spacewalk was cut short to the four and a half hours instead of the planned six and a half, but all of the main tasks were completed and a few smaller tasks were pushed until the next spacewalk. But overall, a major success. Yeah, Sawyer, the problem that you're referring to involved a small water leak and something called, I believe, the service and cooling umbilical. It was hooked up to Jack Fisher's spacesuit in the equipment lock section of the Quest airlock just as uh, they were getting ready to, to go out. They used the buddy system, really, on... Um, on the one that Peggy Whitson was using, she connected hers first and then Jack connected hers or the other way around. I know that one of the spacesuits, and I believe, Sawyer, if, if you were following this too, it might have been Jack Fisher's that was turned on a lot longer than Peggy Whitson's. And because of that, uh, the uh, the folks at the Johnson Space Flight Center figured, well, maybe we should go ahead and cut this thing short. So they only expected to perform one task out there, which was the replacement of that uh, that equipment box. I believe the uh, the Express Carrier Avionics box, or XPEC as, as it was referred to. It weighs about, if, if, if I recall exactly, on the ground here, Sawyer, about 200 pounds. Um, but up there, you know, its mass is, you know, negligible. Uh, what they were doing is they were they were swapping out one on one of the trusses on the ISS and putting this new one on there. The new one had arrived on the uh, the Cygnus uh, uh, spacecraft that just that had just gotten there a couple of weeks ago, and they installed this new box to replace it. Now this box, uh, I believe, the purpose of it is to go ahead and send, to route telemetry between the experiments on board the International Space Station and the computers. So this is kind of a critical critical piece, but uh, they thought that this was just going to be the, the single task of the spacewalk. Uh, both uh, Whitson and Fisher made short work of that, so they just moved on to the next task, which was uh, revisiting um, 
a experiment that uh, Mark, you, and I, and, and Sawyer uh, talked extensively about in uh, 2011, and that was the, the AMS. Uh, so what that entailed was a small line, was a small data line that I believe had not been used since it was plugged into the Space Shuttle Endeavor when it was there. And this data line, uh, if, if they, they got it to work, would go ahead and allow um, AMS to deliver more data and more information. And uh, they were able to go ahead and, and make sure that worked, and they got that pretty much done. Uh, and I believe they pretty much saw here if I can um, only really miss two objectives, and, and those objectives were kind of minor. One was to... Uh, install a, uh, an HD camera and the other one was to uh, attach a, a new wireless antenna to one of the um, to one of the modules outside the uh, the ISS uh, but um, all in all it, it turned out to be quite a successful outing for both for the 200th spacewalk in support of uh, ISS operations and uh, I'll tell you, if anybody was following the spacewalk, Sawyer, you and I were talking about this before we, we got on. Jack Fisher, good God, he, that, he, he sounded like he was having you know, more fun than human beings should be allowed to have on that EVA. Uh, I mean, he was, he was almost, almost like a big kid out there, but he was getting work done, getting work done in a smart fashion. But good God, he, he was really, really having fun out there. And you really get the feeling, too, that, you know, both Whit Whitson and, uh, and Fisher are just having a blast up there. Exactly. And uh, before we do talk about that, I do want to point out something you briefly mentioned there that, yeah, this was the 200th spacewalk in support of the International Space Station. The first one took place on December 7th, 1998, with NASA astronauts Jerry Ross and Jim Newman aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour STS-88 flight. And this was number 200. They have now spent a total of 1,247 hours and 55 minutes working outside the ISS to help maintain it and assemble it. And uh, that's enough to make anybody giddy, including Jack Fisher, Peggy Whitson, and us. Yeah, really. I mean, it, what was really cool, Sawyer, is watching um, the spacewalk and then seeing the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, the MSO2, sitting out there. And it had, it still had those uh, the old decals from... Uh, STS-134 there, and, and it, you know, it, it kind of, you know, it, it was kind of neat seeing that part of the, the history and, and that part of, uh, of what, uh, what really, really built the station. So uh, it was neat taking that, that temporary walk down, uh, down memory lane. Also, the, one, uh, the other thing I want to point out, too, uh, on the, uh, the SCU or the, um, the service and cooling umbilical. This was a piece of uh, equipment inside the ISS. It really had nothing to do with uh, the uh, the spacesuits or the uh, the ex extravehicular mobility units or EMUs. Uh, I know we were rather critical of those uh, last episode um, because of a, a report issued by uh, by the NASA uh, IG. But uh, these, the spacesuits themselves, performed like champs in this uh, on this EVA. There were no issues, and uh, just want to go ahead and get that part out, out about uh, about the spacesuits. 
Yes, glad to know that it wasn't the spacesuits because we talked about that in episode 902 if you haven't listened to it, the issues with the spacesuits they've been having. But thankfully that wasn't the case and uh, I think one word for that might be awesome sauce. <laughs> Although I think, um, I think Jack Fisher has a better way to describe it. Here is the audio from Jack Fisher and Peggy Whitson on the 200th spacewalk to support the ISS. Now uh, this was Jack Fisher's first ever spacewalk and he is famous for using the term awesome sauce. So let's hear his first words as he gets a look at the Earth from just inside his spacesuit. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> Biggest slice of awesome pie I've ever seen. No awesome sauce? About a fondue pot. Oh, a okay. ginormous fondue pot bubbling over with piping hot awesome sauce. So, uh, anybody want some fondue spilling out with awesome sauce now? <laughs> I mean, I think I think there was an over-under on the ground, uh, if I recall hearing that, about when the first awesome sauce was going to be uttered, and I don't know. I'll have to find out. We'll have to find out who won the pool. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I probably would have gone over. But, um, <laughs> again, Jack Fisher is absolutely awesome and really cool. Definitely follow him on Twitter if you don't. Astro, the number two fish. And take a listen to our interview with him from episode 901 from a few years back. And even then, he was awesome. All right. So we continue along then, past the International Space Station, and back to the company that we were talking about before. We have to go back to SpaceX. As uh, an employee of SpaceX made some very interesting comments at a public discussion that just so happened to be recorded. Gene, do you mind filling us in a little bit about what was said at this meeting? Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Uh, Tom Mueller, who is a SpaceX employee, visited a, uh, a, a group of, uh, well, the, I'll, the only way I can characterize it is, uh, is really a, a group of fans. Uh, with uh, the New York University Astronomy Society. Uh, and this particular uh, recording, uh, this particular Skype call, was uh, posted up on, uh, on Twitch TV. Uh, it was a 54-minute uh, call, and um, it's not, I'm not exactly, I guess it was just sort of a, an invite to talk to the group and to, to talk about what SpaceX is up to. But um, I don't know. They they it, it they kind of he kind of threw all the competitors under the bus and and did some trash talking. It was kind of reminiscent of an incident last year uh, with a United Launch Alliance employee, Brett Toby, who kind of made some off the cuff remarks and uh, well was kind of fired for it. Quite frankly, uh, basically admitting that. Uh, ULA was going to have some challenges competing with with, with SpaceX if they stayed on 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 the uh, on 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 the trajectory that they were on, but here uh, he kind of the Mueller kind of threw um, everybody under the bus. He, he he first threw the Russians un, under the bus by saying that uh, you know they're they're now claiming, and this is true. Uh, the Russians had claimed that they were going to come up with a with a rocket that could competitively beat SpaceX with you know their their economy and and their uh, their ability to be reused. And Mueller said, 
that's kind of interesting since they've been working on the Angara booster for about, uh, he said, about, oh, 22 years and have launched it once. And all of a sudden he said they're going to come up with a low-cost rocket. Sure, fine. Um, he basically said that, uh, too, that United Launch Alliance, there's no way they would have considered buying engines from Blue Origin except for the pressure that uh, that SpaceX had applied on them. There is no way that um, Ariane, Ariane 5 the, uh, the Ar from Ariane Space would have been abandoned and moved to the Ariane 6 uh, configuration that they're working on now if it wasn't for the pressure that SpaceX applied. Which, well, you, you can't, in a way, you can't argue with the situation because it's true. Because that's true. Uh, they are real, really trying to be more nimble and they're trying to develop a new booster that will go ahead and and uh, and kind of compete with SpaceX. It's the same thing with, with the United Launch Alliance approach with, um, with the Vulcan rocket. They are talking about just simply reusing the engines, sort of jettisoning the engine pack and recovering that rather than going ahead and recovering just the, the, the cores. In, in their eyes, the, the engines is, is really, really where the expense is. Uh, it'll be interesting to see which one of these, um, which one of these uh, implementations prevails in the market. But uh, the one thing that I found kind of disturbing in this whole thing um, was uh, the reference to the planetary protection uh, protocols that NASA has put has has put in place because there was some discussion about SpaceX's Mars pro program and uh, he Mueller doesn't mention by the way the space launch system outright and I think the reason why he's trying to go ahead and um, not get NASA involved in this is uh, the fact that number one right now they're a paying customer of SpaceX uh, and uh, they don't want to ruffle any more feathers. Uh, if you recall, the uh, when they made the announcement that they were going to do a circumlunar mission in 2018, uh, NASA said, "Okay, we we wish you well, but by the way, you still have to deliver uh, Crew Dragon, and you still have to go ahead and keep sending cargo to the ISS. Don't forget it." That was basically implied in the. Um, in the message, but the planetary protection thing was the thing that 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 I I kind of really took alarm to. He basically said that um, we're 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 not going to go ahead. You know, we're going to follow NASA's planetary protection stuff for now, and that was the corollary there. So I'm kind of wondering. I and I know Cassie and I. You know, I, I kind of. Cassie, gosh darn it, I really wish you were here right now. Because um, one of the questions we both wanted to ask Elon Musk, and it's it, it was a critical question uh, to both of us, is, okay, fine, we go to Mars, and gosh darn it, guess what we find? We find microbes. What then? My opinion, and this is probably also the, this is also the opinion of, uh, of uh, the late Dr. Carl Sagan, who who said in um, Chapter Five of Cosmos, Blues for the Red Planet, if Mars is found to be inhabited, 
I believe we should do nothing. Mars belongs to the Martians, even though they are small microbes. And I believe that. So um, that may answer the question that Cassie and I were planning to ask. And if it does, I'm a little disturbed. Back here on Earth, we've stopped entire construction projects because of a, you know, a uh, endangered lizard or an endangered beetle found on um, found on property where uh, where where the builder wanted to go ahead and build. So, you know, art is is this. You can see where, where I'm going with this, so I, I'd really like to get some clarification on here. They also, if I remember, I'll 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 end with this. They did kind of Mueller did kind of put a small stick in the cage of SLS, basically saying that um, if you're going to go ahead and and uh, use a use a rocket that costs billions of dollars even if you use it a hundred times it's still going to be an extraordinary expense to build and to use and he says spacex is trying to set out to build low-cost rockets from the very beginning so you know but you have to remember too in, in and this is me talking um the mission of the sls and the mission of spacex are two different missions SpaceX is a company. In turn, they're trying to make a profit. In turn, they've they've got satellites to launch. Uh, these are communication satellites, or you know, military satellites for the government. But they are still in the pipeline. Here, we're trying to explore. And to put this in proper perspective, after Apollo 11, we really only launched Saturn V twice a year. So, I know people are kind of used to the shuttle and its launch. Uh, volume and its launch, uh, you know, frequency. But SLS just won't be that kind of rocket. It, you know, it, it it's not meant to be. It's meant to be used for hardcore exploration and for for things that possibly even uh, commercial industry might want to use it for. So, you know, that door is open. I mean, Bill Gerstenmaier mentioned that in his in in a in a press conference that we'll discuss in a little later. But I guess really what I'm trying to say, you can't compare apples to oranges. And that's, I think, with SLS, that's what uh, Mueller's trying to do. But is this going to go ahead and, and cost Mr. Mueller his job? Probably not. Um, I don't think so, because I think the boss kind of likes, you know, the, the, the trash talking. He's done it himself. He called a, if I recall, Sawyer, uh, he called a competitor's rocket a punchline to a joke. Um and uh, so he kind of kind of likes trash talking and may actually even encourage it. So thoughts yeah, I don't see this. I don't see this as uh, anything like the previous ULA incident where he was uh, it's almost terminated on the stage. It seemed like how quickly they got rid of him. Oh, he but, was terminated uh, the next day. <laughs> yeah. But admittedly, at this rate, uh, anyone have a flashlight I can borrow? Because there was so much shade being thrown in that talk that I can barely find my way. Yeah, I mean, it's available out there on, on, on Twitch TV if you want to take a look at it. Uh, we're, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to go through it a couple of more times. I've only seen it through once. Um, and uh, Eric Berger from uh, RS Technica also has a, has a pretty good uh, um, you know, assessment 
of of what the uh, what was said on there. Um, but, but I have a question. Then thinking about this, if you're one of those companies that was called out, in particular, let's say ULA, because he specifically mentioned them and having to you know keep up. The only one it seemed like that he didn't say anything negative about was Blue Origin because they're also trying for complete reusability. But if you're one of those companies like ULA. How do you react to this? You know, one of your competitors who started off as nothing has risen very quickly in comparison to something like ULA that's been doing this since the 90s. SpaceX has only really been flying since the mid-2000s. I mean, how do you react to that? I mean, you're still coming up with an EELV, which is, you know, an expendable launch vehicle that's meant to be thrown away, and it is still cheap, and it is still reliable, but at the same time, you got someone who's you know, working on bringing that cost down for everyone saying, well, we're going to be the reason that you have to bring your cost down. Well, it, it, in all fairness, uh, United Launch Alliance, I don't think existed until about maybe 2006, 2007. It was sort of the um, the combination of, uh, of an effort between Boeing and uh, Lockheed Martin. They decided to go ahead and join forces to uh, get a uh, a better a better system going for for the U.S. military and for but, and for NASA. But what I meant is is that you're flying the Atlas V and the Delta IV, which have been going since you know the '90s, compared to a rocket that's been flying since the mid 2000s. Yeah, sorry, you've got to got to look at it at it the, this way too. There's always that that you know that wild card that kind of steps in and changes the game and that's what essentially spacex turned into uh it, what uh, uh brett toby was trying to trying to say is you know uh launch reliability records are fantastic but if if cost is going to be the only factor then you know people might be willing to go ahead and you know uh, throw the dice and and hope for the best. Uh, I will say the approach is kind of interesting, where they're 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 kind of looking at uh, rockets as though they were FedEx trucks and and not exactly rockets. Um, I don't know if that's going to come around to bite you. It's the same thing with with using very very low cost components because that's essentially what they do over at SpaceX. Um, I'm again that might come around to, to, to bite you, to bite you in the butt too. So you know I mean it, it's gonna be very, very interesting to see all of this kind of play out a little bit and and to see who can satisfy uh, the customer better. And hey, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's gonna make everybody smarter. It's gonna make everybody, um, think hard um, about what they're doing and try to really, really satisfy their customer and really, really try to keep costs down. Uh, it will be kind of interesting to, to watch this whole market kind of play out. And, and don't forget, too, as you pointed out, Sawyer, we've got Blue Origin entering this, this market in the not-too-distant future with the new Glenn Booster. Uh, Orbital ATK is also has a EELV on the, uh, on the books. They're studying that that uh, that part of it as well. So there's going to be two new competitors jumping in on this. I think even with as many competitors as we're going to have in this market, that too is going to force the price down. 
Um, so it, it, it's it's with all these choices now that are out there for uh, for for space launch, I'm just hoping that there's enough um, launch opportunities for the uh, the market to uh, to sustain it. Because um, if if I recall exactly at the uh, quarter at, at this first quarter uh, press conference that. Um, uh, David Thompson, CEO of uh, Orbital ATK, said he he sees the um, the satellite market, the commercial satellite market, still being kind of weak, and the demand on the government side being kind of high. So it's going to be very very interesting to see if that that whole market can be sustained in that ecosystem. Exactly, and I mean do you. <laughs> You brought up the perfect point there, is that this is going to bring the cost down for everybody, and that's that was the ultimate goal. I know one of the things SpaceX has said is they want to bring the cost down, and it's, they mentioned that it's forcing everyone to bring the cost down. I don't know if that's the reason or not, but if it is, hey, that's good for everybody. And, I mean, <laughs> there's so much more we could say on this, but I, I wonder what you guys think, the audience. Send us your thoughts. Mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com is our email bunch of you tweeted us stuff we appreciate that tweet us story ideas or your thoughts at talking space post it on our facebook page at facebook.com slash talking space we are also talking space on google plus and definitely please give us your viewpoint we will go ahead and respond and don't forget on, on our opening episode we had one response that literally we spent a whole segment on so some of these responses we get we find extraordinarily intriguing and extraordinarily thought-provoking so please by all means give us a shout all right so now we're going to do a quick little roundup of some private space news while we're sticking in that industry and these are stories that you might not hear about because they're companies that you don't really hear about and one of them that we've talked very little about is the vector space systems company now, Vector Space Systems had a first test launch on, at the beginning of May of their new Vector-R rocket. If you've been to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex recently, you'll see that they actually have a model of it in the rocket garden there. Now, the Vector-R rocket, which only flew up a few thousand feet on its first ever test flight, which was successful, will be used for a satellite network that doesn't really get much attention, and that is the small satellites, so that includes CubeSats, NanoSats, and other microsatellites along that line. Now, we don't know when this will go into full launches, but this test launch from a few weeks ago, they're off the ground and they've got a good start. Yeah, Sawyer, um, Vector Space Systems is, is an interesting duck. They, um, they, they're trying to take the market that essentially SpaceX kind of walked away from with Falcon 1. Uh, there, are other, there were other companies in this market uh, as well, but um, uh, Orbital ATK is one with uh, with Minotaur. But uh, there was a few others, including uh, Firefly, which unfortunately is now defunct. But uh, this is exciting news, and I, I think too there the, the, there is a very big interest in getting CubeSats into uh, into low Earth orbit and low and low cost payloads. Uh, not only from a STEM standpoint too, but also from, you know, from a from an Earth resources and Earth studies uh, standpoint as well. So, uh, I know uh, who was it? Uh, ISRO threw about what ninety eight cubesats on one one booster, and 
uh, they, they just to recoup half the cost of, of launching and uh, that was really the whole thing but it, it turned out to be you know they they played that for a huge publicity stunt I'm not too sure how many of those CubeSats actually survived and got data but uh, Vector is a whole different booster it's it's designed specifically to support the CubeSat market so um, you know, it, it'll be fun to watch watch this particular segment of space launch as it as it moves forward. And this thing, it really isn't all that all that big, but but it'll it'll pack a punch um, for uh, for the CubeSat market, and it'll be kind of fun to watch this whole the vector story uh, play out. And again, there are competitors here too, so it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to to see everybody duke it out and again as we were we were saying the more you have in these markets the more choices you have to get your your payload to orbit the the more the price is going to go down the more affordable it's going to be and the more affordable i think too if you're like a high school or or even an elementary school and you want to go ahead and fly a CubeSat as a as a school project, uh, the 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 sky is going to be you know the limit, if you will, um, if you're able to go ahead and get a very very low cost option to allow these kids to to sort of you know virtually go to space. So it's it's going to be kind of fun to to see this all play out. Absolutely, and Vector seems like a company to keep an eye out on, and we certainly will be doing that. Indeed. Now, one other quick company you might not have heard about, Blue Origins, had a recent test of their BE-4 engine that they're working on, and it had a slight problem on the test stand, correct? Yeah, Sawyer, they tweeted out back, I guess, just yesterday uh, that they had lost a power pack test hardware on one of the BE-4 test stands yes yesterday, uh, not an unusual, not unusual during development. That was the uh, the beat, that was the tweet from the Blue Origin Twitter feed. Uh, it followed up with another one quote. That's why we always set up our development programs to be hardware rich. Back in testing soon, they're undaunted by uh, by the loss here, and they'll 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 press on and try to solve the problem. The power pack is a uh, a key component of the engine. It includes a lot of the turbo machinery that pumps propellant, in this case liquid oxygen and methane, uh, through the, the engine and its components. And according to uh, Space News here, it generates about 75,000 horsepower, getting its, getting its power from a small engine called, called a pre-burner. So this is sort of an, a, a, an important component. It's, it's needed for BE4 to function properly. I'm sure they'll go ahead, uh, investigate what caused this little, little mishap, and uh, and uh, be back on the test stand before you know it. But uh, it's it's going to be kind of interesting given the next uh, the next piece of news. I think. <laughs> Yes, indeed, and uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne made an announcement about their engine, AR-1, and uh, you want to tie these two together here? Sure. Um, they actually just tested their pre-burner. <laughs> this is the, uh, the AR-1 is essentially the, uh, uh, the Aerojet Rocketdyne answer to the RD-1E, as is BE-4. BE-4 will also be used 
uh, to uh, power the new Glenn rocket, and BE-4 is also in the running to uh, power United Launch Alliance's Vulcan rocket as well. Um, AR-1 is also in the running, although uh, United Launch Alliance keeps saying that AR-1 is about a year behind schedule. Then you have news like this saying that um, you know they have successfully tested their uh, their preburner. Uh, they're according to the press release I, I'm seeing here. The preburner is a uh, critical component that drives the engine's turbo machinery. Um, it is uh, built with a proprietary alloy, uh, which is a uh, a burn-resistant nickel-based super alloy. Um, and they're saying now with this quote with this design now confirmed Aerojet Rocketdyne has cleared one of the major hurdles to fulfill the congressional mandate to end US dependence on Russian made engines for military launches so they were successful with the preburner uh, blue origin not so much they got to go back to the drawing board I'm kind of wondering what that will do to the race to replace the RD-180 or really um, to replace, to have an American alternative to the RD-180. The RD-180 engine is a, is a Russian engine. It is powering right now the Atlas V, which I dare say is probably the most reliable booster on the planet. But uh, as 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 uh, the uh, U.S. Senate had pointed out, or at least the U.S. Armed Services Committee kept on pointing out, you know, we're tired of paying money to Putin and his cronies, and we want to get rid of the RD-180 engine. We know it, everybody knows it, but it has to be done in a slow, methodical way. And right now, um, we're trying to go ahead and develop two alternatives to the RD-180, these are these two engines. So I'm kind of wondering what this, all this means in the race to replace the RD-180, and is this the chance for, you know, AR to, for Aerojet Rocketdyne to move ahead with their development and move ahead, you know, and, and leave uh, Blue Origin in the dust, or is this just going to make Blue Origin meaner and and leaner and try to go ahead and solve the problem quicker, and uh, and get back on the test stand and 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 make sure that their pre burner works. So I, I'm this is again a situation we're going to have to watch real closely, Sawyer, and and see who who the who the winner ultimately will be in this race. Exactly. I mean, these are a lot of companies you don't really hear about, but these engines are going to be flying hopefully sooner than later. And uh, it's good to hear that one of them is getting closer and the other one, well, that's why they do tests. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that'll be up and running again soon. So a lot of good news from little companies that you don't really get to hear that much about. So now we go to our final and biggest story, and that was a teleconference that was held this past week. I believe it was also on this past Friday, May 12th, 2017. On the call was Bill Gerstemeyer and Robert Lightfoot. Robert Lightfoot, in case you don't know, he is currently acting as the head of NASA. On that call, one of the main topics was the space launch system. And as we discussed last episode, it was delayed until 2019. On this call, they announced that they hope to have an exact date in 2019, sometime in the next month or two. 
But the biggest part of that was there had been discussions on whether or not there would be crew aboard this SLS mission, EM-1 as it's called, Exploration Mission 1. And the answer is no. They had looked into it and have decided that EM-1 will, as originally planned, fly crewless. But back in February, a study was requested by, uh, I believe it was the uh, the uh, uh, Trump NASA landing team. This was a uh, this is a team of individuals that come to each agency to try to get information on the agency, what it's currently doing, and and so on. And uh, um, the discussion on that kind of went something like this okay we see that you're going to go ahead and fly em1 uh, you know in the 2018 time frame now it's the 2019 time time frame um is there any chance at all that you might be able to go ahead and put a crew on there and uh they stepped back they nasa took the challenge on and they said huh we don't know, but uh, gosh darn it, that's why don't we take a look at that? And in very, very short time, in about a, a good two months' time, they prepared a report that uh, looked at all sides of the problem. And uh, when uh, Bill Gerstenmeyer announced that they were going to do this, they said, actually, this is kind of a unique opportunity f for, uh, for the SLS program and for NASA. They could go ahead and kind of look at the program and really, really study it to see, you know, are there things that we're doing right now that possibly we could do better, that possibly we can we can improve on, that that will ultimately make the the uh, the space launch system and the Orion uh, vehicle a safer vehicle. Can you know, these findings be be sort of incorporated into this? So in two months, uh, the teams got together. They they did the study. It was uh, released, I believe, the end of April, and uh, a press conference was called for uh, this past Friday afternoon to discuss its findings. And uh, the the whole gist of it was. Are we on the right path right now using EM1 uncrewed and going to EM2 crewed or is it, you know, can we go ahead and combine the two, two missions into one flight and is it, is it, you know, uh, is it risk feasible and is it, uh, is it technically feasible and is it, you know, budgetary, um, all the budgetary uh, uh, stars kind of lining up in that direction too. Well, after um, all the dust settled, it was decided that uh, NASA was on the right path to begin with, to keep EM-1 unpiloted and to move to EM-2 with crew. And the, the, the reason really was they, they kind of broke it down into, in, into two er areas and um, to look back at to look back at, at the decisions that were made for EM-1 uncrewed and how those decisions would impact EM, a, a crewed EM, EM-1 mission, and that kind of stacked up a little bit. Um, and the second thing they looked at, what would be needed for an accelerated uh, EM-2 mission? 
they discovered that technically it was indeed feasible to fly with crew. But given all considerations that the baseline was, was, uh, was the best way to go, and it would make um, EM-2 a much better and safer mission for the crew. To also say, say this, Robert Lightfoot also reiterated that they are going to move the, uh, the launch date of SLS further to the right, and this is due to uh, the, several, the several things that happened. Um, it will be in 2019. They have not released a firm date. Um, they're going to have a formal review to go ahead and get that, that particular date, date in place. Uh, Bill Gerstemeyer was saying, too, that uh, the space launch system is really, really taking shape. There's going to be a test of the... RS-25 uh, core engines on May 16th. Um, they've had some production issues. They did have a have an event, unfortunately, uh, at Mashud, uh, where uh, the dome section of the SLS, the bottom the bottom area, which is kind of shaped like a dome, um, there was sustained some uh, significant damage at Mashud. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, well, they think that dome, unfortunately, is a complete loss. The good news is that it was not totally welded yet to the uh, to the test article. Uh, so, um, and unfortunately, as uh, Bill Gerstemeyer said during the uh, the press conference, he he looked at this as a as a class B. Uh, event, and um, I to look at the Space News article on the on the uh, on the mishap uh, a class b event costs anywhere between 500,000 and what 2 million dollars uh, boeing is convening a mishap review board to take a look at what happened and uh, and correct the good news is it's not going to put um, sls back uh, there is a um, spare test article for that gnome piece so they're going to use the spare um, but um, I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm not going to really do anything with that spare until uh, until the uh, the mishap board goes ahead and and renders its verdict. So that that is just one thing that was mentioned. But uh, they did mention three things, three thorns in the side of of the SLS program. Uh, one, of course. Uh, has been uh, that tornado that hit Mashud. That event really, really hit them in the gut, and, and they're having a bit of a hard time trying to recover from that. They can recover. It's just going to take a long time to uh, to recover from the damage of the facilities and, and the work stoppage that that kind of caused. Um, the other thing is... They, it, uh, one of the criticisms for SLS is, well, gee, you're, you're using tested components. How come this isn't going, going faster? You're using the RS-25 engine, which used to fly shuttle. You're using the solid rocket boosters that used to fly shuttle. What are you doing here? Well, to be honest with you, the, the differences on the SRBs are, are, are really, they may look the same outside, but they're very, very different on the inside. That takes further testing. Um, and a lot more, more, uh, more, you know, work to go ahead and and make sure that that, that they got things right. 
Uh, it's the same thing with the RS-25 engines. They were designed for shuttle, but they're being ported over to this vehicle, and we want to make sure that uh, that they perform in the in the manner that uh, that SLS demands, and not in the manner that uh, that shuttle demands. So that's you know a couple things there too. But also, Gersten Meyer mentioned some of the the manufacturing techniques that they're that they are. Um, they're kind of challenging with. They're they're having this this huge welding machine that they're trying to go ahead and wrap their heads around, and making sure that these welds are strong and and can pass muster. Um, to to, I mean Sawyer, you know you will know what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about this little arc welder here. I'm talking probably the biggest welding machine on the planet. And they're they're really trying to wrap their heads around making sure that that's working and that 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 functions the way it's supposed to function because this is really the way that whole core stage is going to be zipped together. So they're they're trying to to make sure that these techniques are, are held up too. The other thing that that Gerstenmeier mentioned is uh, getting components together. Um, he said it's a lot. The supply lines out there are, are a lot different for uh, American-made components. He said that it, it isn't just like it isn't like the old shuttle days where you had a lot of these these vendors already there. You, there's a lot less of them out there, and uh, it kind of surprised kind of surprised a lot of people when they went ahead and tried to search for uh, for U.S. companies to go ahead and 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 supply the components and get these uh, these supply lines moving. So that also took a little bit longer than they expected. But one of the other things that Gerstermeyer mentioned was indeed the service module of, of Orion, which uh, which is uh, being built by ESA. The service module is uh, a derivative of the old uh, ATV cargo vehicle. And uh, there have been some development problems there too. So uh, so it, it's created this kind of perfect storm for SLS, and uh, and and these were the these were the reasons that were put forward as as far as the delay was concerned. Um, but overall, um, the uh, this 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 means that EM one is going to be a far more you know spectacular mission. I always thought EM one was going to be a a, a very very challenging very very demanding flight without crew and I always thought too that that EM-1 uncrewed would make the crewed mission a lot more safer because you'd know what you have um, with uh, EM-1 being uncrewed you can really really push that vehicle and, and Bill Gerstenmeyer kind of made this point during the press conference right and it also as a result it saves you know a lot that they have to do. They don't have to get it completely man-rated, completely ready. They can put more testing instrumentation on it instead of having to put all of the life support systems that you would need. Of course, they're going to have some of them on for testing. Uh, it's like we're having a prototype uh, aircraft. You can, you know, if, if it's unpiloted, you can really, really beat up on it and, and see what this thing is made of, what it's capable of doing, what you really, really have. And that's really the whole point of EM-1. It's going to be an exciting mission when it flies. I mean, we're, we're talking, what, sorry, about a three-week? I think it's going to be, what, about a three-week mission? Yeah, I believe it's about 21 days or three weeks. And personally, in the long run, I honestly think it's better to do this flight without crew. I mean, it was great to try and test for it, and it would have been kind of cool, almost like an Apollo 8 switcheroo or like STS-1 where it was tested with crew, you know, as great as it would have been. Uh, I think this is safer. Plus, hopefully by the time this launches in 2019, 
you'll have uh, the Starliner from Boeing, and you'll have the Crew Dragon flying people from American soil into space, so it's not like we won't have manned flights from the U.S. by then, so... I think it's an overall, I think it's a smarter decision, a better decision, and they said as a result, though, this won't change any other dates, even though this got pushed back to 2019. I, I always thought that, and I think I, I may have said that uh, during our opener, I always thought that EM, going with uh, EM-1 as an uncrewed mission was a much more smarter, much more, um, uh, much better way to go. In, we have been using that same life support system now, you know, on space station for some time. It is going to be slightly modified to for Orion, but it, it's virtually the same system. So there's a lot of confidence in that. You're going to get a much better vehicle. You're going to get a much stronger vehicle, and a vehicle that I think people on the ground are going to understand better once you throw throw human beings on board. And that is really going to be the critical part of this. Um, just to go ahead and add one more thing that, that Gerstenmeier said, he said, this is not a one trick pony. You know, we're not going to just do EM1 and EM2 and say, see you later. Um, this is, this is, Lightfoot basically went ahead and said, we are building something that we hope will be a sustainable system, uh, long term. And, uh, we really, really want to, want to take our time and really, understand what we're building and make sure that we're building it right and that's one of the reasons why things are kind of taking slow i mean sawyer you and i kind of sat here the uh, the other week and sort of well i don't want to say criticize but that's the only way, word i can come up with uh because we're, we're well past we're now a couple of weeks out from the point where um the first shuttle mission flew after the apollo soyuz test flight so we're out longer and I believe uh, Bill Harwood actually asked that question during the um, the press conference. He he's essentially asked, "How do we go ahead and and you know look at this when you've got detractors saying, well, heck, SpaceX is flying in less period of time, and and you're just kind of just still on the ground. What what's 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 going on? I mean, he said, shoot, we we went to the moon quicker." Um, what, what's happening here? And uh, Gerstenmeier went through the, the litany of, of, of curveballs that got uh, got thrown at them. They're, they're taking a slow, methodical approach to this. They want to make sure they can build the best thing that they can. And I applaud them for the effort. Um, I, I think they're going to get a much more robust and a far better quality of vehicle out of this. Yeah, there was a lot covered in this teleconference, and... Uh get a chance to listen to it it's certainly worth a listen if you really do nasa's still in the olden days i'm sure someone's posted it online if not you can call the phone number 800-284-5340 to listen to the teleconference from within i believe it's one year total of today's date uh in may of 2017 so until may 2018 the passcode is 2017 2017 boy i can't believe i'm actually saying that in the year 2017 <laughs> I kid, but it's definitely worth a listen if you get a chance. And on that note, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer, and really looking forward to the next episode. This is going to be, I hope it's just as action-packed as this one was. Oh, yes, and thank you as well for joining us, Mark Raderman. And one thing I know, along with the other things that I've learned in listening tonight, is what you're going to say next, Sawyer. So take it away.
<laughs> I wonder what I'm going to say. If only I haven't said it for 250 plus episodes at this point. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us, as Mark was alluding to. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.